Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 288 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a very special treat for you. A great conversation with the Democratic gubernatorial nominee for the great state of Vermont, Christine Halquist. And we talk to Christine about rural Vermont and poverty, about her transformation or transition as a transgendered woman, and also how that has helped her be a better leader. We talk about dog whistle politics and how the system is rigged and climate change and economic gain that can be made by countering climate change as part of her vision. We talk about the Koch brothers and other ne'er-do-wells and labels and a little bit about hate and a lot about hope and the future. A great conversation with Christine Halquist today on the program. We have an EW essay by yours truly called A Bit Late, another great essay by our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, titled The World is Yours, Boys, and a poem called Ensemble. And as is always the case, of course, we will imbue all of this with the music of several wonderful artists. Let's get to it. Episode 288 of Troubadours and Tours. Yeah, we must have died alone. Oh. 
long, long time ago. bit late. As of late, I have been walking to my office down an alley with the children's library on one side of it and the Albright Public Library, all ages I suppose, on the other. After 30 feet or so, I take a left turn into a little-known sidewalk between the city's cultural center and the back of the Albright. I have noticed a crate used as a seat under the archway of one of the large English castle-like wooden doors of the cultural center. One day, a week or so back, I walked past a man in his 30s or 40s with long, frizzy hair and beard, wearing faded blue jeans and a jean jacket and a gray baseball cap, sitting on the crate, with his back facing the castle door and his head in his lap. There was a wrapper with Ritz-type crackers at his feet, next to his left work boot. Today, a bit late, I walked briskly on this path again, past the crate. The wrapper is still there, almost in the same position. I also saw an empty Ziploc sandwich bag and an empty plastic water bottle on its side, to the right of the crate. The crate is a faded green in color. The man was not there. A breeze blew down the path between the buildings. I heard the cracker wrapper and bottle move, and I continued to walk. 
to my office a bit late. Christine. Christine Halquist, thank you so much for being on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. 
You're welcome. So sorry about the bad connection before. Oh, no problem. No problem at all. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like to share a bit of background information with our listeners before we get started with our discussion. That sounds great. Okay, here we go. Christine Halquist is an American politician and former CEO of Vermont Electric Cooperative, VEC. She is the first openly transgendered major party nominee for governor in the United States, winning the 2018 Democratic nomination for governor of Vermont with over 40% of the vote. Ms. Halquist worked at VEC from 1998 to 2018, the last 12 years as CEO, until she resigned to run for governor. Christine drew national attention as a pioneering example of a CEO transitioning while in office. Her transition was documented by her son in an award-winning documentary titled Denial. We are very pleased to have on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, Christine Halquist. Again, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule on the road to the governor's seat in Vermont. Oh, you're welcome. I'm I'm uh, honored to be here. And uh, I, you know, I want to get right into it. Um, the first question here is: When one is considering whether or not to vote for you, why should it, and why should it not? be an issue that you are a transgendered person? You know, it should not at all be related to me being transgender. Um, It should be, and I think for Vermonters, my being transgender is no big deal. Um, So, you know, I'm running for governor for the state of Vermont. Vermont's certainly been a a leader in in protecting LGBT rights. And the reason people should vote for me here in Vermont is because I'm going to focus on growing rural Vermont, our rural Vermont economy. Two-thirds of Vermont is rural, and we've seen increasing rates of poverty um, over the past several years in in rural Vermont, just like we have in rural America. And the key to growing Vermont will be connecting every home and business with fiber optic cable so that Vermonters can be connected to the Internet at the same speed as the cities. And, of course, if we do that, people are going to flock to Vermont because we have the – we have the highest uh, education performance in the country. We're the healthiest state, and we're we're uh, the safest state, and we're an incredibly beautiful state with a great door, great outdoor recreation, and our people are as uh, are amazing as well. Uh, I agree. I I, uh, I lived in Vermont myself for a while in South Royalton. I went to Vermont Law School, and uh, it made a huge impression on me in so many ways. It's it's one of my favorite, if not my favorite, states in the union other than my home state of Pennsylvania. Um, so I hear you, right? And I understand how much you, you care and love uh, Vermont. And I don't mean to insult you by asking you questions about uh, one aspect of who you are, one of many, many aspects of who you are. It's just I know people are interested in that uh, too. And I, I want to give you time to talk about your philosophy and your vision for Vermont and for the United States even. Uh, but just indulge me, if you would, a little bit on, on a few of these questions. Um, and, you you know, the, you could just kick them to the side, as you just did to a certain extent, and I'm fine with that as well. Uh, I'd be remiss not to ask them. The, the, the next one is, again, sort of related. Uh, how do you believe your journey of, of transformation has helped you in, in terms of being a leader? Oh, that's a really, that's a good question. Um, and, I, and, I, and I believe my journey of transformation has helped me tremendously as a leader. Um, you know, I, I, uh, 
certainly, uh, certainly uh, my whole entire life, my whole career has been in leadership. You know, when I was 29 years old, I became the, uh, uh, you know, at, at about 450 people, you know, I was responsible for about 450 people. And, uh, and I learned one of the most important things about leadership, which is to drive out fear. Drive out fear so you can have the, the maximum diversity of ideas and thoughts. Uh, and and be up and also people are willing to put in the extra effort when they're when you've got an organization where people are valued. But when I transitioned, I learned something even more important. And, and I transitioned on December second, uh, two thousand fifteen. And um, what I learned was that we, you know, and I should say I knew this before, but that there was a gender hierarchy. But there's one thing knowing, and there's one thing experiencing it. Um, and, and so when I, you know, about a week after my transition, um, I, I had met with my daughter for dinner and she basically, uh, asked me how things were going. And I told her one of my experiences, which was that I was meeting with a group of men who I normally meet with. And they, I said something in the morning, they didn't hear me. And I said something later, they didn't hear me. And the afternoon, someone said, oh yeah, you know, Christine said that this morning. And my daughter said, that's not transphobia. That's, that's called being a woman. Um, so, you know, there's all these subtleties in, in our, in our uh, culture and in our workplaces uh, around gender hierarchy. And, and, of course, those also stack up in racial justice issues. So, um, and, and so you know, the, my learning is that, you know, we have to be even more aggressive in terms of how we, how we create, create, create true equality and opportunity for all. Well, and you know, this kind of uh, is a great uh, connection to what you just said, I think. When you look at, I mean, right now, as we speak, I'm sure you're following the news in Washington. Uh, just really moments ago, um, the the uh, nomination of, of Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court has moved a step closer to occurring. Do, do you think, uh, you know, what we have witnessed during this Supreme Court nomination process, do you think it reveals deep-rooted social problems we have in the United States? Yes, and I think those problems, you know, even, even, I will tell you, even though I love, you know, I have so much love for Vermont, we, we have, you know, we certainly have racial justice issues we have, we have to a, a address here. But I think what's happened, you know, my, what I've learned um, is that, you know, we, while, while we, you know, we had a, Martin Luther King did a great job for a civil rights movement, what happened was bigotry went underground. And we can see that all through politics with the dog whistle politics that was carried through, uh, certainly uh, with Ronald Reagan and, and, and uh, Richard Nixon and all, the, all, those, all those kind of folks. So we've been, you know, we, and, that, and of course, those dog whistle politics under Donald Trump really came to a head. Um, so when it comes to misogyny and bigotry, it's, you know, it's, it's clear it's, it's, it's been the underbelly of America. And, you know, under, you know, I worked hard to get President Obama elected. And I personally felt we had arrived, but the, but it's clear to me now, and which is the reason I'm running for governor, um, that you know we can never sit back and take democracy for granted. We have to continue to work hard because it, it's certainly you know one event changed the face of America. I, I I can totally relate to what you're talking about when you say that. Once we elected President Obama, it seemed like we had arrived, and and man, has it been a total 180 degrees since, in my view at least. 
Um, so yeah, uh, we 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 cannot we cannot uh, stop with our pursuit of justice and the like. The thing is, do you believe the the system is somewhat rigged in a way to keep uh, those those uh, patriarchal sort of uh, figures and and that mindset in in power? Oh, it's absolutely rigged, and I. And I even think, you know, I even know some very well-intentioned people who don't even recognize, you know, the, the language that's being used. It's, you know, and, and again, I have personal experience with this when I, because I've lived in both, both genders. Um, and, and, uh, it's, it's, it, and it's intentionally rigged. And I'm going to tell you what, why I say this. You know, if we had adjusted the minimum wage for inflation right now, it would be $22 an hour right now. Um, but it's only $7.50. Right. Um, so, you know, this was a strategy that I believe really started with Ronald Reagan. You know, he went after the uh, air traffic controllers union. He really started this rhetoric to break up the unions, really started to use some of these um, dog whistle terms, terms like, you know, you're talking about welfare moms. And, of course, immediately people, a lot of people of color in those days, kept that going to, to, to use the racial divide to to really uh, allow the big ripoff from the, from the working class, you know what we've seen now is is we're, we we this generation of kids, you can't even afford a home. Uh, you know here in Vermont, it it really it takes interestingly enough it takes twenty two dollars an hour to form a, to uh, be able to afford a two bedroom condo or a two bedroom apartment or or and um, you know and and we're just not making that kind of money in Vermont, you know, we're, we're up to 1050 an hour, but still we've, we've seen a massive transfer of wealth. Um, and, and clearly we, you know, every single person in America should be, should be, uh, rising up and addressing that issue. And why do you think we do not? Because I, I wonder the same thing. Why don't we like right now what's going on again in Washington with uh, the Supreme Court nomination process, why aren't there 500,000 people in the streets in Washington, D.C. protesting? You know, I don't know why there aren't. Um, you know, for me, I, I'm so happy to be running for office. You know, in November 9th, 2016, I went into a, a political depression. Um, and and you, you should know, my life commitment was to solve climate change. But, um, you know, watching the events and then even seeing what's happening here in Vermont with, with our Republican governor following some of the same national tactics, you know, I couldn't sit back anymore. But I, my message to everybody is, you know, I'm, I'm pretty excited and working hard right now. And my message is um, the best antidote for political depression is activism. Yes, well put. Well put. Now... We have a lot of listeners in Vermont. Our, our show is syndicated in, in many parts of the country, uh, and namely in Burlington through WBTV radio and also WOOL, Black Sheep Radio, in Bellows Falls, Vermont. And uh, for, for the, some of those folks listening, uh, and I guess everyone, really, I'm curious too, if, if you win the governor's seat in Vermont, what, what do you do first? Oh, I, well, the... Of course, the first thing I'm going to do, our our governor, who claimed he was running on affordability, and and um, and when I, by the way, when I give this message, I think it is a global message to the United States, you know, because it's happening all over the country. 
But our governor, here's what happened. Our governor talks about affordability. But at the same time, he vetoed some very important bills. He had more vetoes than any other governor in history. He vetoed a bill that would have raised the, the minimum wage to $15. He vetoed a family leave bill. He vetoed two bills that deal with toxins, one toxic in toys, one toxic in the air. And he also vetoed a racial justice bill. So what you're seeing is, um, you know, he talks about affordability, but when he does that, he's talking about affordability for the rich. So, my, you know, my message is when I get into office, I'm going to ask for those, all those bills to be brought back to me so I can sign them in, in and get them in place. Because, we, you know, we've got to start the path towards getting back to a, a living wage. But at the same time, I'll immediately start the process of, of rebuilding our, our rural Vermont um, as well, which includes getting started on connecting up the home business with fiber. And I mean, Vermont is is really a, a coveted piece of of land uh, for for many people. The way that uh, you folks take care of the natural environment there is is, is really a, an amazing feat and an amazing example for the rest of us. How do you think you could increase economic um, health there and opportunity, and at the same time maintain the, this pristine natural environment? in Vermont? Well, let me address that in two ways. Um, first, let's, you know, we, Vermont, just like the rest of rural America, has seen, you know, a, 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 a quite a downfall in the past decade. Um, and when I talk about rural Vermont, two-thirds of Vermonters live in rural Vermont. And there's a lot of empty and vacant spaces, retail and office space, all throughout rural Vermont. So we're going to grow our economy. We won't have to build any additional buildings. We just rebuild the ones that we have. Um, but also Vermont has some really uh, creative and, and uh, forward-thinking land use rules that in create incentives for, for, for rebuilding our downtowns. So it really is about rebuilding our downtowns, not necessarily creating sprawl. Um, but I also want to talk about climate change. You know, uh, my, when I left the... the, uh, the uh, electric co-op we were 96 percent carbon free we were offering incentives for move away from fossil fuel heating cooling and transportation and we did that without a rate increase for five years proving you could solve climate change it doesn't need to cost more money and that's going to be part of our development vermont exports two billion dollars a year to the fossil fuel industry we keep that money in state it's going to it's going to create innovation and jobs and uh, and 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 solve climate change so it's, that's also part of the economic development plan. Can you explain to me, how, how do you keep that in your state? What do you, what, what do, you do to keep that in your state? We uh, continue to do what we're doing, which was, which was I focused on the past, you know, past 10 years, which is, uh, you know, um, wind, solar, hydro, uh, farm methane, um, building local energy sources. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that right now, China in, in some of those categories has taken a huge lead over the United States and, and other countries will will soon follow, which is, uh, in my view, uh, a shame, uh, to say the least, and, and just a, uh, a poor uh, choice in, uh, for the future of this country's economic uh, possibilities, not to mention climate change. Yeah, that's a there's still people who don't believe climate change is real, which is sort of crazy to me. Um, uh, that's one of the challenges, I think, though, right? I mean, in our country, at least, a lot of folks don't really believe it's an issue. How do you address that when you talk to folks? Well, 
first of all, let's talk about the folks that don't believe it's an issue. It's the it's the Koch brothers in the fossil fuel industry that don't believe it's an issue. Of course they don't. Um, but not, you know that it's uh, you don't have to go very far to see it's an issue. <laughs> Just look out your window. <laughs> so so I mean if, you know if you don't believe it at this point, then then you there, you got something else going on. Um, with, by the way, you know solving climate change is a great economic. Uh, you know, will create great, great uh, economic growth as well. So even if, even if they don't believe in climate change, they ought to be working on it in order to create new jobs and new innovations. Yes. But, you know, I have I don't have any patience for people that don't believe in climate change because there's there's something going on there that doesn't even make sense. No, it's misinformation by the the people that you mentioned, the Koch brothers, among other uh, giant corporate entities that bank literally on the fossil fuel industry, and a lot of folks yeah. they just believe it. I want to remind you too, they're ripping you off. <laughs> so, so you know, not, for ninety-five plus percent of Americans, they need to recognize that's money. You know, that's that's the, that's the continued shift of money from uh, from the uh, from the working class to the wealthy. Exactly. Again, folks, we have the great uh, good fortune to talk with gubernatorial Democratic nominee for the state of Vermont, Christine Halquist, today in the program. And uh, I want to ask uh, another question. I know you've dealt uh, during your campaign. Obviously, you're a very accomplished, intelligent, uh, driven individual. And you're out uh, in your state, a state that you love very much, trying to convince your fellow citizens that you could be a great leader for them. And in the process of doing that, you have encountered some hate because of one aspect of your 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 personhood. Uh, how you how do you deal with that? How do you not get downhearted? Well, I first of all, I'm going to tell you that this is the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> so, so it's uh, it's uh, you know, and and when I got into the race, I told our campaign team that. The more successful we get, the more vitriol and hate we're going to get. Um, that's expected. That's the underbelly of America and the underbelly of Vermont right now. Um, you know, in Vermont, I will tell you, it's 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 such a low level issue that I that it, it doesn't even necessarily uh, show up on my radar. But certainly nationally, we're getting you know for every every one bad email we get from Vermont, we're getting probably fifty from the rest of the country. Um, but that said, let me go on the positive side and say, for every one bad email I get, I get at least as many um, of people who say uh, what I'm doing for them. Uh, and uh, some of those some of those emails that I get of support bring me to tears. So, um, I, you know, I, 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 I would never stop moving forward just for those people that, that were, were, uh, were creating um, hope for. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. And uh, how about your family? How, how is this affecting them? My family is, um, you know, you should know I've, I've got three wonderful children who have all been activists throughout their, their whole life. We're a pretty activist family. You know, they, so initially when I talked about running, um, they were concern for me but they're very supportive and very uh very positive 
So they're 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 of the same ilk as you, it seems. Yes, I would say the whole family. Uh, somehow we're all, you know, they're of course, uh, they, you know, my spouse, the kid's mom, you know, she is an incredibly loving person, and and we're all work, you know, our our, our whole drive on all this is is really driven on an underpinning of love. So um, so I think we're all committed um, to this campaign. And uh, what part of Vermont do you uh, guys live? I live uh, right on the edge of the Northeast Kingdom in Hyde Park, Vermont. You know, almost probably about forty-five minutes from Canada. Yeah, I've never been that far up. Yeah, I hear the, the Northeast Kingdom is beautiful. Yes, it is. And when um, when people are looking at who you might be on the spectrum of politics, would would you do you think most people would consider you conservative, moderate, or liberal, or something else? Oh, I I got to tell you, I've been called everything, um, and and I I avoid labels like like I I just avoid them entirely because my experience with labels is they've been used to oppress people and divide people, um, and I'm going to answer that with the following uh, statement. You know, when it comes to things like a living wage and you know Medicare Medicare for all and ending homelessness, those aren't political issues. That's called being in a civilized society. Yeah, I agree. And and how how likely do you think your chances are of of taking the the government or the governor's seat in November? Well, let me tell you what's happened with our sitting governor. Uh, is in the past several months he's gone. He's dropped thirty eight points in popularity. He's gone from the third most popular governor to the 13th most unpopular. And our latest polling show that we're in a statistical dead heat. Um, and, we, and if we get the message out, we'll be, Vermonters like the message, we'll be ahead. It's exciting. I mean, you have a month, a month. So what's your, what's your plan for the next month? Are you going to be out on the road a lot? Yeah, well, of course, on the road, every, every minute trying to, to uh, trying to be face to face with with uh, with voters and Vermonters, um, but at the same time, you're, we're going to be going for uh, really step up our media campaign. And now, let's say uh, it, it doesn't happen. Where do you go from from uh, there if you don't win the governor's seat? Well, you should know I've never had a backup plan in life. <laughs> <laughs> good. That's a good one. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of that way as well. Um, any, so you have to win. Otherwise, you just play it by ear. Well, cross the cross that bridge if I have to. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm plan, We're planning on winning here. And do you have aspirations, perhaps, as time goes on, for uh, a, a more um, national position in the government? Well, let me put it this way: running for governor was never in my career plan, so so I don't have any further. I don't have any aspirations beyond this. And uh, if if you're trying to connect with some of those folks, not I mean voters in Vermont to support your your run uh, for governor, and also just people who are trying to wrap their head around something that is odd to them. Again, you know, for a lot of folks, 
someone who's transgendered it doesn't really they don't know how to how to process it and then on top of it now this is a really accomplished individual uh, in many regards what what could you say what would you say to those folks who are trying to figure out why they should support you or why or, or how can they better understand who Christine Halquist is well there's also there's a documentary out there called denial documentary uh, about my life it's denialdocumentary.com certainly watch that documentary I guarantee you if you watch that you'll you probably you're likely to vote for me um, but but I also will point out that you know I ask people you know just just look beyond the being transgender. You know, just you know, if you met somebody from a foreign country that you didn't ever know uh, anything about that culture, um, you know that you you would ask the person. You know, what you you would start the dialogue about their culture. So just you know, if, if you know, treat me like somebody from a foreign country you've never seen before, and and uh, that's you know the, the reality is it's you know it's it's really no different. Um, because if you haven't dealt with somebody's transgender before, I understand that, you know, I understand it's different and confusing and, but there's, you know, we're, we're, we're human like everybody else. And, and finally, Christine Halquist, uh, folks who are, who are confused about the political state of affairs, your fellow citizens here in the United States of America and in Vermont, um, confused and, and again, maybe downhearted. What can you tell us to help us out with uh, where to go and how to go from here? Well, I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe that what we're seeing in 2018 in terms of politics is a direct reaction to 2016. And people are rising up all over the country like me and getting involved with politics. Um, you know, I, I talked to Emily's list uh, about a month ago, and they said in 2016 they had 900 women interested in running politics. Uh, this year, they had 43,000 who indicated interest. You know, so we've got a, a quite the political revolution going on right now. And I believe that you know we're going to be telling our children's children that 2018 was the year we made history. That's when our democracy survived a despot. Well put. Christine Halquist, ladies and gentlemen, here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I wish you and your crew the best in the next uh, few weeks. And I hope to hear that you're governor in November, and maybe we'll have you on the show again. I mean, I'd love to, but if uh, you have the time once you're governor, that'd be awesome. Okay, thank you. I, I really enjoyed the discussion. Same here. Take care. I know. And I ride on a mail train, baby. But I can't buy a thrill I've been up all night Leaning on the windowsill Well, if I die on top of the hill Down the double E 
coming The windows are filled with frost Well, I went to tell everybody But I could not get across world is yours, boys. That championship season is a play for the people of America. That's what Joseph Papp said of the 1972 work by Jason Miller, a playwright and actor and hometown hero of our depressed former coal town. Papp, the legendary founder of the New York Shakespeare Public Theater, which became the Public Theater, was a pioneer in seeking diversity in audiences as well as playwrights, and he championed the play in part because it was about the working man, not the middle-class characters usually seen on stage at the time. Miller was an intense 33-year-old actor, married to Linda Gleason, daughter of Jackie, who apparently wasn't too crazy about the union. His wife famously rescued the pages of his manuscript while Miller was playing in The Odd Couple in a regional theater in Texas. Like the other Miller, Arthur, Jason wrote about failures. Like Long Day's Journey to Night and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, his play takes place on one set and on a day and night of boozing, backstabbing, and revelations. That championship season is set somewhere in our valley of depressed former coal towns, so it's not only by a native, but about the natives. The characters are George Sitkowski, a sad sack mayor with a cheating wife, Phil Romano, an unhappy rich businessman who counts among his many conquests George's wife, James Daly, a bitter school principal who feels he has wasted his life, Tom, James's brother, an alcoholic drifter and truth teller who is something of a stand-in for the playwright, and Coach, the bigoted, bromide-spouting bully who talks to his players as if they were still adolescents, which, in a way, they are. They're also a sampling of our town's ethnicities, a Pole, an Italian, and two Irishmen. Or, as they would say, a Polak, a Dago, and two Mix. They've gathered at Coach's musty Victorian house to celebrate 
yet again, the winning basketball game of that championship season. Only their teammate Martin is missing. He never comes to the reunions. He knows the win was tainted. They cheated. So they're commemorating a lie. The jacket copy of the hardcover edition of the play, itself a sign of success, calls the play a vivid, disturbing, and yet strangely exhilarating statement on the quality of life in this country in the 70s. And it is an enjoyable evening of theater, which accounts for its plaudits. The Triple Crown of American Theater, a Pulitzer Prize, New York Drama Critics Award, and the Outer Circle Critics Award, and many years of productions all over the world. There are juicy roles for all the actors, and the dialogue is funny and dirty and quotable. Almost 50 years after its original production, the play is showing its age. The bigotry and the misogyny stand out in particular. And the concerns and attitudes of the coach and his players made them throwbacks even at the time of its writing. Their middle-aged characters adrift in the present and pining for a past that didn't exist. They're also quintessentially American male characters, boys who reach their pinnacle as high school athletes and have never been able to achieve a high point like that since. They're like John Updike's Rabbit Angstrom, the star player and emotionally arrested jock who became a car salesman. And they're like a few of the guys I went to high school with. They've never become functional adults. George is a failure as a father, husband, and mayor. James is awash in self-pity, thinking himself overlooked and thwarted, held back from realizing his true and dubious potential. Tom is a drunk who has fallen on his ass all across the country. Even rich, successful Phil is unhappy, filling his empty life with drugs and sex and fast cars. Coach, unable to adjust to the modern world, was fired for hitting a player who allegedly disrespected him, and now spends his enforced retirement, as he says, walking the streets at eight o'clock in the morning with nowhere to go. After the crises and recriminations and reconciliations on the night of their reunion, they paper over their problems, listen to a recording of their championship game, reenact the winning play, and then gather for the annual photograph for Coach's album. They end the evening as they began it. They're angry, befuddled, middle-aged white men who don't understand the world they find themselves in. Maybe the play is not so dated after all. When Jason Miller died, never again reaching the success of that championship season, his New York Times obit noted the parallels between the theme of his play and the facts of his life. Unfulfilled promise, talent squandered, time lost. His play is a kind of obit for our depressed former coal town, or at least a certain way of life of a certain group of men at a certain time in the 20th century. The world is yours, boys, 
the coach tells his aging players. But they're not boys, and the world isn't theirs. Ensemble. He buttons up his cardigan and looks into the closet for a matching pair of high heels, cognizant of the nuance the mauve scarf brings to his ensemble. I've come to terms with who I am, not sure that I give a damn today. My black mirror on the wall Will not catch me when I fall away As tired of the constant stares As I am when no one cares for me I don't feel whole beneath the light But it's too dark beneath the night to see But you
choices you don't get to make Like who is gonna take your heart away I've been proven poison true But I was medicine for you one time And though you made me doubt my aim I learned pain to be the same as trying And there you have it, episode 288 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, this week's featured guest, Democratic gubernatorial nominee for the great state of Vermont, Christine Halquist. We wish you the best. we also like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. And, of course, these wonderful musical artists, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, David Bowie, Fantastic Negrito, Bertie Bardot, The Cure, Bob Dylan, Terrence Blanchard, and Branford Marsalis, too. Until next week... Why don't we give it a go and try to enjoy this one? Thanks for listening.
mail train, baby But I can't buy a thrill I've been up all night Leaning on the 